Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and we're continuing our uh, Supreme Court series uh, with Professor Akhil Amar. Welcome, Akhil. Hey, Andy. Back to Terse. Okay. <laughs> it's great to be with you again, Andy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this uh, this has been very enjoyable as we as we do something that perhaps people thought we might have done from the beginning with talking about the court. Um, uh, and now we're up to um, justices uh, seven, eight, and nine, uh, and from the point of view of seniority. And these are the justices that uh, were appointed by uh, President, or nominated at least by President Trump. Um, and of course, the fact that they have this in common uh, says something about the way that we think about justices. You know, a lot of times you'll read in the New York Times something that a particular uh, decision was uh, was offered by uh, one justice, and then they'll say, "Not this justice was appointed by you know President Clinton or whatever it might be." Um, and uh, you know, I think there's good and bad in that. Um, what's your reaction to that, Akil? Uh, some judges ha- have balked at the uh, fact that n- newspapers are, are now much more likely to mention the appointing president, or at least the party of the appointing president, Republican appointees, Democrat appointees. Um, and they say that just is implying to the uh, American public, to the readers, that, that judges are merely um, politicians in robes. And I think... I respectfully disagree. I don't think it's implying anything. It's just giving people genuinely useful information. Um, when they, when um, uh, a lower court federal judge um, gets himself or herself in the news, uh, and I read about it on CNN or Fox uh, or the New York Times, and they don't tell me who, who appointed uh, that judge, either the party or the, the, the appointing president, um, I the first thing I do is actually, and if I don't know the, the the judge in question, I go on Wikipedia and look that up. So I think that's it's it's it it's just useful information. It it it, it contextualizes things. Uh, as I said, I'm enough of a legal realist to believe that, um, especially on the Supreme Court, where precedent is not. Um, binding, um, Supreme Court is authorized to change its own precedents. Brown is authorized to move away from Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education. Um, I'm enough of a realist to think that um, um, most judges, most of the time in high-profile cases, often um, have a tendency to um, see the world a certain way, very similar to um, how um, other um, fellow party members see the world. Um, Republican justices tend to cluster um, in high-profile cases, and so do uh, Democratic justices. Um, and that's why I'm so appreciative of John Roberts um, in the Sebelius case. Why do I single him out? And I keep talking about him because he's a Republican appoint, uh, upholding um, a big Democratic plan and a plan that almost all Republicans in Washington, D.C. hated. Almost all the Republicans in the House, almost all the Republicans in the Senate, 
and when I say almost, it, it might even be to a person, um, and all the uh, other Republican justices. So I single him out because that was a decisive moment, a testing moment, and in my view, he largely passed the test. I wish he hadn't invalidated um, the, some of the uh, Medicare parts of the, of the bill in the name of, of, of states' rights, and, and I wish he had upheld Obamacare as not merely a permissible tax law, but also a permissible regulation of interstate commerce and, and a civil rights law to boot um, and a national security measure. But I give him special credit because he crossed the line. Actually, none of the other Democrats crossed the line. They, they stayed on their side of the line, um, as it were. So um, it's perfectly sensible to, to talk about um, these three as a set, not just because they're Republican appointees, this, these final three, but because they were all appointed by the same president. And, and, um, and, and that is a relevant data point. I think that when you you think about the court, it's um, in a democracy, uh, having a a prominent judicial branch uh, raises some questions of of legitimacy. Um, If uh, our government is an elected government, the judges are not elected, um, and uh, instead they're appointed but in a sense they're elected because they're appointed by people that we elected. So in part their legitimacy uh, comes from that fact, and you would think that to the degree that that the justices have a political profile, it should roughly reflect the political profile of the nation that elected them. On the other hand, um, we are appointing judges that that, that are meant to interpret the law, not the politics per se, um, so, the, so both of these are, are strains, and actually, I think that the, the court right now, being six-three Republican, if you will, um, in a country where eight of the last nine presidential elections uh, saw the popular vote carried by the Democrats, which has a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House, notwithstanding the, the Democratic uh, deficiencies of those bodies. Um, there's a, there's a certain imbalance there, and uh, that, to some degree, might call into question the legitimacy of the court. Um, I think that's almost exactly right. You've stated it very well. Um, on the data, we should just double-check. Is it eight of the last nine or seven of the last eight? I think we'd, we'd want to check. Um, uh, but um, here's what you said, Andy, that's just right. Um, justices are picked politically. Um, And that's not a bug, that's a feature. The Constitution provides for that. They're picked by presidents and senates, and in the Constitution, presidents and senate are are basically elected by the people, especially after the 17th Amendment. The the Senate is now directly elected. Um, That's not a bug, that's a feature. They're picked politically, that's the one side, and you've got it just right. So we should talk about who picked them. That's that's relevant. Um, And on the other side, they serve for life, um, or in, even in a Mars world, um, they would still be independent. They don't have to co- come up for re-election. And that gives them a certain independence that enables them to actually call it legally as they see it um, and not worry about um, whether that's going to kill them in, the, in an upcoming primary, the way every senator has to worry about a primary from, if he's a Republican, his right these days, or a Democrat from her left, 
Um, and, um, and of course, every House member has to worry about that, and presidents want to be reelected. Um, which is every first-term president has to have to worry about that, and second-term presidents care about um, their their reputation and their legacy, which they want to be preserved by someone whom ideally they handpick to replace them, taking us back to to previous episodes. So, everyone else in Washington D.C. has to have a finger in the political wind, a political finger in the political wind about uh, to which way the wind is blowing right now and is likely to blow in the next election. And judges and justices don't have to do that. Um, lower court judges should be worried about whether they're going to get reversed by the Supreme Court, and that's it. Um, but that's again a bug and not a, I mean a feature and not a bug. Um, um, of course, the lower court judges, to the degree they aspire to be higher court judges, have uh, certain political uh, considerations as well. True, and, and poor men want to be rich, rich men want to be king, you know, justices want to be chief justice, okay, you know, from a certain point of view. Um, but it's a feature, not a bug, that a lower court judge cares about the Supreme Court because they're judges of inferior courts that are inferior to the Supreme Court. They're supposed to be, um, they're supposed to basically, in effect, answer to um, the, the, the Supreme Court. So that's what they should care about, and, and the justices ideally should just care an, about getting it right um, on the law and not worrying about um, the, the current politics of the thing. All that said, because law is not mathematics quite, um, where every mathematician agrees on what the right answer to um, um, a certain um, multiplication problem might be, um, or a long division um, a, a, a problem, um, all the mathematicians, all, all math people presumably agree that uh, two plus two does equal four, at least under, with, with certain um, uh, premises and postulates. Um, and not all good lawyers always agree on certain difficult cases. Um, so even justices that are trying to get the law right see the law to some extent through their own eyes, and uh, uh, and they are. Um, those eyes are to some extent um, politically um, charged because um, they are Republicans appointed by Republican presidents uh, or Democrats appointed by Democratic presidents these days. And just to repeat what was said before, um, uh, only one of the justices was the product of a bipartisan process in which a president of one party got the nomination through a Senate controlled by the other party. That was Clarence Thomas, and it was ugly. Um, uh, George um, H.W. Bush, Republican, appointed, um, uh, and a, a Senate uh, Judiciary Committee uh, presided over by Democrat Joe Biden, you know, and the Democratic Senate uh, confirmed. Um, that hasn't always been true in American... In American history, there have been not very many um, cross-party appointments. Richard Nixon picked Lewis Powell, who was a Democrat. He was a Southern Democrat, and that was actually part of Nixon's coalition. Um, let's go back to the founding. George Washington, every justice that he picks basically prominently supported the Constitution, even though only half the country voted for the Constitution. Yet every one of the justices that Washington picks was on the Federalist side, the pro-Constitution side of um, uh, the lower federal judges that he picked were, again, overwhelmingly um, uh, Federalist. He didn't pick a single just judge or justice who openly opposed the Constitution. And again, 
almost half the country in a lot of places opposed the Constitution, but he picked from his side of the aisle. John Adams with the Midnight Judges is basically picking from the Federalist side of the aisle, and, and Thomas Jefferson, when he gets uh, appointed, uh, elected president, will, will um, pick um, folks from, from his side of the, of the uh, political spectrum. The first time a president of the United States crosses the political aisle, and, and political parties, um, uh, a two-party system kind of emerges um, in the early 19th century pretty um, uh, enduringly. Um, there, there are some um, uh, changes. The Whigs give rise to the Republicans eventually, and the, the Federalists um, you know, uh, die out. But, but there's a two-party system in place for most of American history, um, beginning early on, beginning with John Adams against Thomas Jefferson. And the first time a president crosses the political aisle and put for the Supreme Court is not until Abraham Lincoln. And when Abraham Lincoln does that, he picks Stephen Field. Um, the real division in America, as Lincoln sees it, isn't Republican versus Democrat. It's whether you're a unionist or not, whether you support um, the, 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 the union government or your secessionist, and he picks Stephen Fields, who's a war Democrat. Lincoln needs, actually, um, a, a bipartisan coalition in some respects, just as Richard Nixon's going to want some Southern Democrats. Um, Abraham Lincoln wants some war Democrats. And, of course, he picks as his own running mate um, in 1864, the second time around, um, um, uh, a war Democrat, Andrew Johnson, uh, dumping from the ticket the Republican from Maine, Han- Hannibal Han- Hamlin, um, it doesn't that didn't end work well. out so well. Um, uh, yeah, that, yeah that, that does not end well. Um, uh, uh, but, but Lincoln is trying to be bipartisan in a certain way. So now you see that, that presidents are picking justices from their coalition. That said, um, once you're on the court, you call it as you see it. And, and, I, and we mentioned last time at least three prominent Republican appointees who be in the modern... <coughs> excuse me in the modern period, who um, drifted away from the Republican Party, or, as I said last time, the Republican Party drifted away from them. They were northern Republicans, David Souter from New Hampshire, um, John Paul Stevens from Chicago, um, and Harry Blackman from Minnesota. You know, all um, Republican appointees, um, but northern Republicans. Earl Warren? um, Earl Warren, um, even earlier. Earl Warren, interestingly, although he ran on the Republican ticket, obviously, for the vice presidency um, in uh, uh, 1948, um, along with Thomas Dewey, um, had Dewey defeated Truman as that famous um, a newspaper headline from Chicago um, uh, um, uh, 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 erroneously said, Dewey defeats Truman. Had Dewey, in fact, defeated Truman, Earl Warren would have been vice president of the United States on the Republican ticket. That said, he Warren himself was a three-term governor of California who, uh, uh, for one of those elections, was actually the nominee of both parties. The Democrats, as well as the Republicans in California, at a certain point, made him their nominee. So, um, uh, uh, But that could be a statement uh, more about the the political leanings of California than the, those of Earl Warren. Although, as it turned out, you know, as you say, um, you know, Warren clearly did drift to the left over time. Um, but it's interesting, this notion that um, of sort of surprises on the court. Um, I think you would have to say that there's, there was a certain amount of, of uh, 
buyer's remorse on the part of the Republicans in the case of certain justices, Justice Souter and, you know, and, and so forth. Um, and I'm wondering whether that has led to uh, a change in the way judges behave on the lower courts now. Um, justice judges that, that aspire to be Supreme Court uh, justices eventually, you know, may have to be, you know, sort of watch themselves and be very consistently uh, ideological um, in order to have a chance at that. I think there is, there've been accusations of this. And do you see this as affecting, do you think it's true? And do you see it as affecting the lower court jurisprudence in our country? Uh, so very famously, a lot of Republicans um, uh, had a, um, a basically a kind of a mantra, no more suitors, because uh, 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 they thought suitor went wobbly on them. So I think you do see it in the Republican Party, and Trump responded to that. I think there may be these tendencies in the Democratic Party, too, but we haven't seen them as visibly, um, just as I think that AOC and Bernie Sanders are, you know, have certain pathologies in the, on the left wing of the Democratic Party that are somewhat symmetric to certain pathologies we see um, among right-wing extremists in the Republican Party. So, um, uh, um, but um, um, for judicial nominations, I think we see it most clearly within the Republican Party. They've had more nominations um, in recent uh, years. Um, and Trump responded to the anxiety about no more suitors by doing something genuinely um, unconventional. I, I was not opposed to it. I thought it was actually quite um, clever and brilliant when, in 2016, he basically circulated a list of the possible um, Supreme Court um, uh, appointees, and he said, um, if elected, I will pick off this list, and, and uh, he updated the list uh, a bit, and he eventually, and he did pick off the list as, as updated, and so the American people had a sense of who uh, Trump would pick, and, and I'm happy to say he didn't pick the list, he doesn't, didn't know, doesn't care about law deep down, he's, a, he's an anti-law person, I've always thought, law-less, um, deep down in his psyche, um, because he, he, he basically um, is all about um, will and his will and doesn't like anything that restricts his, his will, his whim in the moment. And law is about restricting will and whim in the moment. It's about um, reason and, um, um, in our society, democracy and deliberation. And these are not things that I associate with Donald Trump. So I was glad that he... Um, that, that a list was promulgated. He didn't pick the, just, the, the judges on that list or the names on that list. They weren't all um, judges, um, uh, federal judges at least. The, basically, um, uh, folks affiliated with the Federal Society um, helped create this list, but he endorsed it, and um, he kept his word on, on that, promises made, promises kept on that one. He delivered. He picked people off that list, um, and that's a new phenomenon in America. So now when you vote for president, you know who the president is, you know who his running mate, the vice president is. In earlier episodes, we talked about how um, maybe if we change the rules of presidential succession, you'd know who their number three person was because they'd, they'd pick a special cabinet officer to be number three, and the voters would know that person before uh, the November election and, in effect, pre-approve that person for the number three spot. Um, uh, and... Uh, and now um, Trump 
at least on the Republican side, and that's why I say I'm not sure it's perfectly symmetric, has been basically saying, here's my, my, my list um, if there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Um, Biden didn't quite do that, didn't give us a list, but he did say, oh, um, when he ran, I'm going to pick a black woman um, to fill, I think, even the first slot, that's in effect, um, what he said. So we're beginning to see a little bit of that on the, on the Democratic side, too. Um, since I mentioned... Um, just in response to your question, Andy, um, uh, since I mentioned uh, the presidential succession stuff, I just can't um, uh, resist telling our audience uh, as we record um, this um, event in, in early July um, that you're seeing what can happen if you don't have a good presidential succession system. You're seeing that in Haiti unfold right now. Um, and that takes us back to our first two episodes on Bullets Dodged um, in this, this podcast series. So, so um, now you see why I worry, uh, but, but you see the issue, you see the problem, you see why I'm not hallucinating when I have always been anxious about, for example, assassinations. As we've discussed before, uh, I as a as a lad was um very much um affected by john kennedy's assassination and robert kennedy's assassination martin luther king's assassination and um perhaps as a result of all of that i didn't maybe understand it at the time but i think i do now i became quite an expert on the lincoln assassination and actually studied other assassinations as well um garfield and and McKinley and and other um, near assassinations and and as you know I I've written quite a lot about and thought quite a lot about and testified actually before Congress um, about the presidential succession issue and and the stuff happening in Haiti now persuades me that these are important constitutional issues. Um, um, this series that we're doing now is a transition because as you mentioned at the outset, Andy. Um, um, our audience might think what constitutional law is basically about is Supreme Court cases and, and, and court watching. Um, and there are many professors who basically are court watchers, and that's what they do. That's the kind of constitutional law that they do. And, and I am a court watcher of sorts, and we're going to have an episode at some point teaching um, our, our audience how to be sophisticated court watchers. Um, but constitutional law, to my mind, goes way beyond the... Supreme Court, way beyond the judiciary, um, and does implicate core issues like presidential succession. But even if you were just a court watcher, Andy, and this actually maybe just brings this initial um, uh, conversation to a full circle, and then we can start talking about the individual justices, um, the Trump justices. Even if you were a court watcher, you have to understand that presidents pick justices, pick the members of the court, and in turn... The people pick presidents, so you have to be attentive to um, uh, the electoral college and election cycles and, and presidential politics, um, and um, so, um, which is implicates constitutional law issues more generally. And I think that's right. And I think when you're talking about succession, of course, succession has been an enormous issue throughout the history of civilization. And if you look at uh, at Rome, 
you know, one from one emperor to another, uh, there really was not frequently no clear path and, and tremendous violence and so forth uh, ensued. And then European history, the, the war of the Spanish succession and British history and so forth. So, so, you know, in America, there's a tendency to think, well, we have the constitution and it says, here's how succession takes place. But if there's any daylight in there, um, it's a problem. And we, you know, to some degree, we see that, we saw that on January 6th. Um, and uh, even when the, <laughs> there was imagined daylight, not real daylight. So I think it, it does behoove our, our country to, to close some of these, uh, if you will, loopholes that you've identified. And uh, because succession is crucial. Okay. Let me make one other point about succession and its connection to um, Supreme Court replenishment, just since I earlier mentioned John Paul Stevens. Um, uh, well, um, what uh, John Paul Stevens' um, most important majority opinion, it might be his decision in uh, the Clinton and Paula Jones case, um, and uh, uh, wh- um, wh- what does that have to do with presidential succession? Um, John Paul Stevens is the first post-Watergate uh, appointment to the court, and he's very skeptical of um, uh, claims that a president in any way, shape, or form is above the law, um, and that drives his opinion in the Paula Jones case, Jones um, against Clinton. And how does John Paul Stevens get on the court? He gets on the court because he's appointed by Gerald Ford, who is Nixon's successor. Um, And Ford's um, legitimacy is um, very much connected to um, the fact that he um, was not part of Watergate, even though he was um, uh, handpicked by um, Richard Nixon, who was, of course, tainted by Watergate. Ford himself was not. Who's Ford? He's a northern Midwestern Republican. <laughs> um, and, and who does he pick on the court? A northern Midwestern Republican. Um, Ford himself is from Michigan. Um, uh, um, uh, John Paul Stevens is from Chicago, which is a city, just for our audience, um, on Lake Michigan, <laughs> um, just right near the, 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 the Michigan border, in, in fact. Well, you have, to, you have to go through Indiana uh, uh, to get there. But um, um, you, if, if you're in Chicago and you look across the, the, the water, you're looking into Michigan. Um, uh, and uh, so, um, uh, but that's a story of um, a, 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 a presidential succession that actually worked. Richard Nixon was tainted, and yet our system worked to actually generate a legitimate successor president, Gerald Ford, confirmed by um, the, the Congress, um, who whose one and only appointment to the Supreme Court was John Paul Stevens, who ends up drifting, as I mentioned, into the Democratic column. But again, that's not a total surprise because um, Ford has to get his nominee confirmed by uh, an overwhelmingly Democratic Senate. Um, 
and um, and th- that all factors into the sorts of nominees that Ford could propose. Um, uh, um, and and so now you see, you can't think about the court without thinking about the presidency. This, uh, that's, that's how we began this this segment. You're asking me about, you know, should the press report who appointed which judge or justice? I say, yes, it's actually very relevant. And, and that, in turn, um, at least in America, has been connected to important issues of, of presidential succession, at least with, um, with John Paul Stevens. And then feeding back into... Um, maybe his most important decision, um, which was Jones versus Clinton. And, of course, John Paul Stevens, as you say, confirmed by Democratic uh, Senate. Um, and this is, feeds back into our discussion about Justice Breyer. Um, so one wonders if, you know, if are we in a different era now? Um, and that takes us into the, the Trump era, uh, of justices, where he, of course, had the advantage of a Republican Senate in each case. Uh, and the first justice that he nominates then uh, is uh, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, and I'm not sure I've ever had the pleasure, the honor of meeting Neil Gorsuch. Um, it's possible um, uh, when he was a lower court judge, we were at a conference together, but I have no recollection. He's quite a bit that. taller than you, so you'd probably remember it. Um, so uh, everyone is quite a bit taller <laughs> than I, Andy. But yes, but but he especially, um, and Andy knows I've I, I've got complicated issues about tall people. On the one hand, I adore George Washington and Abe Lincoln. On the other, I'm a huge critic of James Comey, and I think Comey um, basically was too. F- Full of himself, and that's not, and it's possible that that's not unconnected. And that it's, to put more bluntly, it's possible that's connected to the fact that he literally towers over other people. Um, it didn't go to Lincoln's head. Um, I think uh, um, um, Washington had a, a very healthy um, uh, self confidence, but also a, a proper sense of Republican deference and humility. Um, but, um, uh, but, uh, Andy knows from our offline conversations that I often comment on how tall Neil Gorsuch seems to me when I see him on television. Um, so um, as with some of the other justices, it's an, um, his biography is an Ivy League biography to some extent, um, and an insider biography. His, his mother was actually a, a cabinet officer, uh, Anne Burford Gorsuch, um, uh, so a prominent Republican woman, and that's a an ins- so an inside story, a DC story. Um, uh, I think his high school was similar to, maybe the same as Brett Kavanaugh's, but ba- same neighborhood basically. I, I think um, the the um, the Maryland suburbs of um, of DC. I could be wrong about that. I think that might be Georgetown Prep. Yeah, Andy, I think you're right. That rings a bell. And speaking of Georgetown Prep, um, that's a good segue for me to mention um, uh, a, George, a graduate of Georgetown University, not to be confused with Georgetown Prep, um, uh, Antonin Scalia, who was a huge intellectual influence on Gorsuch. Okay, you have to understand Gorsuch from a young age is a Reaganite. He's a child of the Reagan Revolution, almost Literally, his mom is the first woman head of the EPA, um, prominent cabin officer picked by Ronald Reagan 
himself. She's almost as prominent a Reagan woman as, let's say, Sandra Day O'Connor. And, of course, Reagan puts on the Supreme Court three appointees, O'Connor first, and then later uh, Scalia and Kennedy. Gorsuch go on to clerk for Kennedy, who's going to be a big influence on him, especially on same-sex marriage stuff. But from a young age, um, he's an acolyte of Scalia. Scalia was a kind of Pied Piper cultural figure, especially for young conservatives, Reagan conservatives, uh, of which Neil Gorsuch, as a young man, seems to me is one. And, And so from a very young age... Actually, um, uh, Gorsuch is looking up to Scalia, as did many people of his vintage um, and his kind of political persuasion, young Reaganites. Um, uh, You and I were at an event at AEI with Paul Ryan, for example, sort of similar um, uh, um, generation and um, an intellectual influence. And we're going to see later on how one of Gorsuch's most important opinions, actually, the Bostock opinion about the rights of, of same-sex and, uh, of, of gays and lesbians in, in employment, is an interesting combination of Scalia and Kennedy to Reagan appointees. Um, well, let me say one other thing. Um, uh, Gorsuch does clerk also for Byron White. I don't think White is a huge intellectual influence on Gorsuch. Um, White was a Democrat, um, appointed by a Democratic president who left um, uh, on the watch of another Democratic president to give him an appointment. He uh, wrote the infamous Bowers versus Hardwick decision, which is anti-gay rights. So it's a reminder that you can be a law clerk for someone and not necessarily um, be um, an intellectual acolyte or, or or a clone, um, and I see the big intellectual influences on the early Gorsuch as being more Scalia and Kennedy, and 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 actually um, Gorsuch himself talked about Scalia's influence on him very famously in an anecdote that he told about the moment when he heard about Justice Scalia's passing, which shocked many um, uh, conservatives. It was very unexpected. He was skiing when he heard the news of Justice Scalia's death, and uh, and tears were streaming uh, down his face um, all the way down the slope. Um, but um, Columbia uh, undergraduate, uh, Harvard Law School, um, does um, uh, clerkships with actually two Supreme Court justices early in his life. And I think that's relevant to uh, his... Uh, self-image as a uh, justice. I, I think um, he is in a certain Scalia tradition of emphasizing words, texts, uh, sometimes out of, you know, in isolation and out of context. Um, uh, um, but, but that's um, a kind of f- feature of Gorsuch's jurisprudence thus far. Sometimes liberals will like that Result in a case called Bostock, he basically says um, that uh, the uh, anti-discrimination laws for employer, law, federal law for employers, Title VII, when it says sex, it basically sensibly um, includes sexual orientation in a certain way. So if you can't discriminate on grounds of sex, you can't discriminate on grounds of sexual orientation, and 
that ruling, which is maybe his most famous, Bostock, actually is an interesting combination of Kennedy and Scalia. Here's how it's like Kennedy. Kennedy's, and for whom he clerked, Kennedy's most important, perhaps his most important decision, um, is his decision on same-sex marriage, Obergefell. Um, and and he, he basically says gays should get the same rights as um, non-gays. Um, and, um, and you can see there's this obvious similarity between that and, and the Bostock opinion um, about the rights of uh, gay Americans in, in the workplace. Um, now, here's the way in which it's like Scalia, because um, uh, Gorsuch's opinion is more Scalia-like in certain respects. Um, um, and this is a version of an argument that I have made on behalf of Obergefell. I say, well, listen... Um, it's clear that the Constitution prohibits sex discrimination. The court has said that again and again and again, um, including a very famous opinion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's best opinion, the, the Virginia Military Institute case. Um, and, of course, that's very central. Uh, protecting women against discrimination is central to Justice Ginsburg's own autobiography. She was a crusader for women's rights before she was even a judge. She was the Thurgood Marshall of the women's rights movement. Okay, um, so so that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she um, places that vision um, in U.S. reports in VMI. Basically, sex discrimination is strongly disfavored. I think that has a strong textual basis in the Constitution because the first sentence of the Fourteenth Amendment says everyone born in the U.S. is born a citizen. I think that means they're born an equal citizen. That's the the textualization of of the Declaration of Independence, um, Lincoln's vision of the Declaration. So Jefferson says all men are created equal. Lincoln builds on that at Gettysburg. A version of that becomes the 14th Amendment for a sentence. All citizens born in the United States are um, citizens. We're all born equal. We're all created equal. And what does that mean? That means we're born equal, black or white. But it also means we're born equal, Jew or Gentile. Um, uh, we're born equal male or female. I would say we're born equal gay or straight. We're born equal whether we're born in wedlock or out of wedlock or first born or fifth born in our families. So that's a deep idea, this birth equality idea. Um, and it's John Marshall Harlan the Elder's idea um, in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson and his dissent in the civil rights case of 1883 and another case that he writes called Gibson versus So text says born equal. Um, or born, and I think that means born equal. Um, And the cases say that means sex discrimination is problematic. Government shouldn't be treating one sex as privileged over another sex. And one way of thinking about Obergefell, um, there are at least two ways of thinking about it. One is if you're born gay versus born straight, shouldn't you have the same legal rights against the government, rights to, um, um, to marry if you like? Um, but a second way is, ah, laws that discriminate against gays are um, in marriage are sex discriminatory. And the counter is, no, they're not. We prohibit um, um, both males and females. Um, we prohibit um, gay men from getting married on the male side and lesbian women from getting married to each other on the female side. So that's not sex discrimination. <clears throat> And that's like saying, oh, well, the law in Plessy versus Ferguson wasn't really race discrimination. We don't let the um, 
uh, blacks go into the white car. That's true, but we don't let whites go into the black car. Oh, and laws about miscegenation, that's not race discrimination. We don't let the black person marry the white, but we also don't let the white person marry the black. What could be more equal than that? Um, so, um, uh, so that's one way of thinking about Obergefell, which is Kennedy's opinion. It, it's because um, we don't, if you don't buy that in the case of, of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson or Brown or miscegenation laws, Loving versus Virginia, um, laws that let straights marry and not gays um, really are um, discriminating against people who are born gay. If you believe that people are born that way, if you're with Gaga, Gaga. Um, and thinking that people are born with sexual identities. But here's a totally different way of thinking about that. Forget actually gays versus straights. Just straight up sex discrimination. If Pat wants to marry Jane, Pat is allowed to marry Jane um, in certain states that's before Obergefell. If Pat is Patrick, Pat, Pat's a male, but Pat is not allowed to marry Jane if Pat is Patricia. Pat's a female. So the government is discriminating between two Pats based on whether a Pat is male, Patrick, or, or female, Patricia. Um, and the government's going to have to get um, in the business of defining you know, whether you're male or female, even if you don't want to define yourself that way, if um, um, you're non-binary or something, or if you've, uh, you're, or you're trans, you're undergoing um, um, medical procedures to change your um, uh, uh, legal... A, a gender, but but it's sex discrimination. That's one way of o- understanding Obergefell is it's it's sex discrimination. Now, if that's one way of o- understanding Obergefell, now take that into Title Seven context and and um, in employment discrimination. And uh, Justice Gorsuch, writing for a majority, says, "Well, it's sex discrimination if um, you um, uh, let's let's say." Um, um, uh, two people are applying for a job, and their names are Pat, and and one, and they're both married to Jane. And you're gonna say, okay, Patrick will hire you. We're not, we have no problem with your being married to Jane. You're you're straight, um, but oh, Patricia, um, we've got a problem with you because you're married to Jane, and um, and we don't like that. Okay, so so that's one way of understanding. Um, uh, the Bostock case, and it's similar to Kennedy, for whom um, Gorsuch clerked. It's also similar to Scalia, in that although Scalia didn't accept these arguments in um, Obergefell, you, you could just make this textual argument that discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation is logically discrimination on grounds of sex in a certain way. So that's probably Gorsuch's most famous um, majority opinion. It can be criticized. Um, even though it's very similar to the arguments I made on behalf of Obergefell, here are some differences. Oh, you're dealing with a statute and not the Constitution. And statutes are often more detailed, and if they really meant sexual orientation, shouldn't they have said that in a more detailed statute? Maybe not in the Constitution that's written at a higher level of generality, but in a statute. And they're modifying the statute all the time, and it's not so clear that that's what they thought. This is a very, very big set of um, applications. Um, it's an elephant um, and elephants don't hide in mouse holes. This is a pretty small little textual basis for a very big result. Oh, Obergefell is about rights against the government, um, and that's one thing, and maybe we should construe those very broadly. The Ninth Amendment, there are more rights than the Constitution enumerates nevertheless. Oh, but in Bostock, that's 
not constitutional rights against the government. These are statutory rights against fellow citizens, against employers who, you know, arguably have interests in wanting to employ whom they want to pick and not whom the government tells them they, they have to pick. Um, so even if you don't believe in Lochner that there's this super strong right of employers to do whatever they want um, as a matter of freedom of contract, that was, that's associated with a, an infamous case from the, the early 20th century called Lochner. Even if you don't believe that, that, that there's a super strong constitutional right of employers just um, and other contracting parties to do whatever they want, you still might think, oh, freedom of contract is an important principle. It's an important principle of freedom. If it's going to be limited, um, the legislature should be very, very explicit about limiting employers' freedom across the board, um, taking um, that decision about whom you're going to hire for your business, and, and this is your life and livelihood. Maybe you're a, a you know a, a sole proprietor or something, um, and you've built up this family business, um, and now it has a, you know a substantial number of employees. But your name is still um, on the company. It's, it's your business, and you'd like to pick ideally the people that you want for your company. And the government is telling you you can't do that. Again, this is not same-sex marriage when the government is in control of everything. This is a private employer, so. Postdoc could be criticized, um, um, but it is Gorsuch's maybe most famous opinion. And interestingly, it's a blend of Kennedy and Scalia from a certain point of view. I mean, there are other uh, federal laws about discrimination in employment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's the whole yes. agency, Equal Employment Opportunity, you know, which uh, uh, Clarence Thomas ran, you know, for, yeah. at, at one point. So, I Correct. mean, this could, it doesn't seem like it's out of line you know, with those laws, um, I guess it sounds. Andy, just on that, um, um, the the other thing that, that you could criticize Gorsuch from, uh, for, I'm not taking a strong position on Bostock. I just want my uh, readers, to, um, our audience, excuse me, to to hear both sides. Whereas I did take a very strong position on um, sex marriage long before the Supreme Court weighed in. The other complexity is this flat-footed textualism. Sex means sexual orientation across the board. Well, that um, uh, you can't have sex-segregated uh, restrooms. That Pat gets to use whatever restroom Pat wants, and you can't say no. You know, or um, uh, and and uh, does that mean you can't have any grooming codes or dress codes in which we say, well, it's one thing for Pat to wear a dress and lipstick um, if she's um, Patricia, but not if he's Patrick. The, if you're a MASH fan, that would be Klinger or something like that. Um, are employers going to be prohibited as a matter of statute for ever having dress codes whatsoever? You might say, yes, we should do all of that. You know, We're in a brave new world in which gender is completely irrelevant to everything related to um, uh, the, the, the market uh, and um, and Justice Gorsuch's opinion doesn't really address those issues. The dissenters raise the issues, and he basically says, he punts. He says, well, we'll have to think about those issues uh, on another day, the, the restroom issue or the, the dress code um, issue. Um, so it's a very radical idea that sex means sexual orientation across the board, not just against the government. That's one thing. Um, but against you know, all private um, uh, contractors in certain domains like employment. That would be, you know, a very dramatic change of our uh, practices. 
Um, and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying um, a certain kind of narrow textualism was clever in Bostock, um, Scalia-like in a way, um, vindicating certain vision, perhaps substantively, that's maybe closer to, to Justice Kennedy. Perhaps not a surprise that it comes from a Kennedy clerk, but, oh, it opens up a big can of worms. So if I'm, I'm just trying to understand the, uh, what you're saying here about the precedential value or, or impact of this opinion, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying that it doesn't really establish a constitutional right or a constitutional sense of equality in the same way that Obergefell does because it's a statutory case. Congress could change the statute. But, correct. But it does establish a textual interpretation of sex as meaning sexual orientation, and that would be applicable in the future depending on the context and so forth. Is that yeah, correct? Um, now, of course, the word sex doesn't quite appear in a, textually in a, a federal ERA because we don't have the federal ERA yet. It, it tends to appear um, uh, in cases like VMI, um, interpreting the 14th Amendment, which just says equal protection and, and, mm. and, and born citizens. The word sex, of course, does appear in the 19th Amendment in connection with voting, and our audience knows that I think that voting is a, uh, a stand-in for all sorts of political rights, not just um, um, voters, ordinary voters voting on election day. You can't have sex discrimination in that election. But I would say you can't have sex discrimination in the legislature, because people are voting in the legislature, so um, it's the right of women to be treated equally um, in the legislature. Um, um, when they're voting on bills, it's no different than ordinary voters on election day voting on uh, an initiative or referendum. I think um, a sex equality in voting means voting on the jury booth, so you can't keep women out of the, their, their, the, the jury um, box. Their people, jurors vote. Um, um, uh, so I, I think the 19th Amendment, which does use the word sex, can be understood as uh, protecting um, uh, sex equality over a, f a pretty robust um, domain. And if sex means sexual orientation, that has some real implications. Um, uh, let's um, take, um, for example, you know, one that I'd be comfortable with, and, and you can see now about holistic textualism, which I don't think Gorsuch does well enough yet, and Scalia didn't do well. Let's take the Second Amendment. It says, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear them shall not be infringed. And at the founding, what is that all about? It's about the idea that our military should look like our society. The people, um, uh, in effect the voters, um, should um, uh, be, in effect, represented in uh, our, our force structure, our militia, just like the legislature should look like America and jury should look like America. You know, our armed forces should look like America. The militia and the people are kind of one and the same, um, roughly speaking. This, uh, the uh, uh, original draft of the Second Amendment said a well-regulated militia, comma, composed of the body of the people, comma, they got rid of that, a positive, just complicated the grammar and syntax of the sentence. But if you think that in a proper republic, basically you're, the, the people in charge of the military should be representative, if that's the Second Amendment, because if they're not, you're going to have military coups d'etat, 
like in Haiti, if the army takes over, um, you see, and it's not representative of the Haitian people. That's the problem in Haiti at this nanosecond, that the army might take over and they're not representative. You want the people in your force structure to be representative. You want them to be representative uh, in juries. You want them to be representative in the legislature. You want them to be representative on election day. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Joe Biden say, oh, we want them to be representative on the bench. The, the bench should, should have a certain diversity to it. It, sh- it should look like America. It should have uh, women of color, for example. Sonia Sotomayor definitely thinks that. She's a, um, talked about her um, uh, demographic identity in her confirmation process, and, um, and Biden has talked about demographic representativeness when, when he's talking about filling the next slot. Um, uh, okay, so if that's the Second Amendment, that you want basically your force structure to look like the country, that's the Second Amendment. And now the 19th Amendment says, oh, women vote. Women are part of the people. They're now part of the we, the people who um, ordain the Constitution and amend the Constitution and vote. So if women are now part of the political people, that's the 19th Amendment. And if the political people, the same word people, in the Second Amendment should basically, um, your, your force structure should, be, should look like that. You know what that means? That means that women should be in the military. Um, and today, maybe we don't have militias so much anymore. The militia equivalents today are police departments at the local level and the army at the national level. So Second Amendment plus 19th Amendment means women should be in police departments at the local level and in the National Guard and the Army um, at the uh, and Navy at the national level. Those are our militia equivalents today. So that's women in the military, women in police forces. Ah, well, that's interesting. And by the way, that means that the draft shouldn't be male only. Um, and, the, and the person who actually this term said, that's right, Akil, women should be part of um, uh, 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 the draft, just like men. Um, and maybe we should overrule a precedent. Two liberal justices um, said that in, in voting to review a case, to, to grant certiorari to the case. Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, they were not joined by Justice Kagan, interestingly enough, who might worry about overturning precedents because that's where she is this day. You know who they were joined by? Brett Kavanaugh who gets it, in my view, on that, and good for him. He joined Breyer and um, uh, uh, Sotomayor on that. But if you're with me thus far, that 19th Amendment plus Second Amendment means women in the military and the draft shouldn't be male only, just like elections shouldn't be male only and legislature shouldn't be male only and juries shouldn't be male only and the bench shouldn't be male only. If you're with me thus far, now add Gorsuch's idea that sexual orientation is like sex. That means gays in the military. Ah, now that's holistic constitutional textualism. And I'm playing with words, the word people, you know, um, sex, um, connecting to sexual orientation, but I'm trying to show you purposively why the deep idea of the Second Amendment, that you want your military to look like your citizenry, otherwise you're going to have basically a kingdom within a kingdom, and, and, and you're going to have a military-industrial state in which, you know, the guys with guns... Um, uh, or, and uniforms are telling the rest of us what to do, even though they're not representative, you know, and that's um, um, Egypt or, um, you know, military dictatorships around the world or Pakistan, okay? If that's the Second Amendment vision. You want your military, your force structure to be representative. The 19th Amendment is representation means women as well as men. Ah, that's holistic 
intratextual constitutionalism. That's how I do it. I'm not just focusing on one word in a cutesy fashion. I'm showing how the deep architecture of the Constitution fits together. I mean, I think that's a that's a fascinating analysis. I do wonder. I think I I, I take you. I go along with you as far as the militia uh, being a stand-in today for, the, or the other way around for the police and the National Guard. Um, in terms of the armed forces, you know, meaning the army in particular, I think it's a little different, right? I and mean, we don't have a, you know, the, the the Constitution has other things to say about the army. You know that has to be you know renewed every so often. You know in terms of its appropriation. Um, the, you know we we don't want to have a standing army. That's why we stay free. The navy's different because you know that patrols your borders and so forth. So these are are things that would and that's not the militia. So that seems so to you're, me. So Andy, you're right as always. There was one missing piece of the puzzle. I just didn't want to get too elaborate here. But um, if if readers are interested. They should read Chapter 2 of America's Unwritten Constitution, in which I explain that after and because of the Civil War, um, the, uh, our understanding of armies and militias was importantly revised, and that revision was built into the very process by which the Reconstruction Amendments happened. Um, so the founders were very suspicious of the federal standing army, uh, of, of a central army, um, but um, the Reconstruction generation actually celebrated um, the... Bo- uh, so for the founders, that's redcoats, bad, boo, hiss. Um, for the Reconstruction generation, that's the boys in blue, that's the uh, Grand Army of the Republic, that's Ulysses S. Grant, as in U.S. Grant, as in United States Grant, and Ulysses Simpson Grant. Yay, hooray. We reconceptualized the relationship between armies and militias in, this, in and after the Civil War. The army plays a huge role in Reconstruction, which include, uh, uh, which is military Reconstruction of the South, which includes the process by which the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are in fact adopted. They're adopted in part because military is overseeing fair elections in the South. I didn't go into all of that, but again, that's holistic constitutional analysis. Our audience can see some of this in something that I think we already put up on our show notes, which is comparison of Jonathan Trumbull's depiction of the Battle of Bunker Hill, um, a, a version of which hangs in the Yale Art Gallery, in which the Redcoats are actually the villains of um, the story, basically, in, um, uh, at Bunker Hill, and the Freedmen's Bureau um, cartoon uh, during, uh, in Harper's Weekly um, after the Civil War, in which actually um, the... Uh, the uh, Central government's officer in the middle of that cartoon stands for law, order, security, peace, um, uh, rights, protection. The flag of the central government is in the middle of both paintings. The Union Jack, they're the bad guys. Stars and bars, I assume the stars and stripes, um, are the good guys in, in that bottom picture. And that's a reconceptualization of armies and militias. Uh, at the founding, the, um, in, at Bunker Hill, the militia are the good guys. By the time of that second painting, their uniforms have come off and they've become clansmen, basically, these local southern um, uh, militiamen from places like Mississippi. So you're absolutely right. In, when I made this move saying the militia today is police officers, you said, okay, I can, can kind of can see that, and National Guard maybe, and you can say, well, I can kind of see that, but I said also, you know, basically armies and navies, you said, oh, where are you getting that? Because at the founding, huge difference between militias, armies, and navies, three different things. All of that gets rethought 
um, uh, in the Civil War era, and you say, well, where is that in the text of the Constitution? I say it's not. It's in the very process by which the Reconstruction Amendments were adopted, and that is part of America's, to borrow a phrase, unwritten constitution. That's chapter two of my book, America's Unwritten Constitution. Um, and it's a wild roller coaster ride. And I guess the other thing that would go along with that is not so much the Reconstruction, but during the Civil War, where you now have um, African Americans in the military, although Huge. not integrated units that doesn't take place until after and, World and, War and II. And that is what leads to the 15th Amendment. If blacks are fighting in arms, then they have to be equal voters. It's a Second Amendment idea that there should that there should be a kind of parallelism between military power and and um, uh, decisional power, voting power, dem- uh, dem- democratic power, democratic power, and military power should be brought into a certain kind of alignment. And see, none of those are the issues in Title VII quite, which is about private employment. Um, and so that's why I have different ways of thinking about a constitution against rights of government, and, um, um, and, uh, and that's why Bostock does raise some different issues. But, oh, isn't it interesting that Gorsuch, in his basically maybe his most famous decision, um, is in certain ways a, um, a, an interesting blend of Kennedy and Scalia. You've now discussed uh, Justice Gorsuch's... Uh perhaps most interesting moment, uh, maybe even his best moment. What would you say were, was is his uh, least impressive moment as a justice? Uh, um, a um, dissent from a, a decision uh, in which the court said, we're not going to hear a certain um, uh, uh, case uh, about election law um, this was um, right before the presidential election, October 28th. Um, the case um, is uh, uh, Timothy Moore et al. versus Damon Sircosta. Uh, so um, uh, it comes out of North Carolina, um, and um, just the basic argument um, is that the Supreme Court should hear this case because um, the North Carolina Supreme Court was misconstruing state election law and the Constitution, Article 2, says that it's the legislature that gets to decide um, uh, certain issues, the state legislature, not the state court, that gets to decide um, certain um, issues of um, presidential election law. That's Article 2. And um, our audience may recall that that's uh, an argument that was um, uh, made in Bush versus Gore, and Justice Gorsuch was, um, in, uh, was reviving that argument um, and saying, we should hear this case because this is outrageous um, that North Carolina courts are usurping for themselves the right to decide certain election law matters. It should be the North Carolina legislature. And he was channeling Bush versus Gore. And wow. And he wasn't the only one who did this. Um, uh, so did Justice Thomas. So did Justice Alito. And not in this case, but earlier for a nanosecond, Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be saying some similar things, but then immediately... Uh, retreated, and I'll I'll talk about that when I talk about Justice Kavanaugh. I'm glad he retreated. 
um, because this Bush versus Gore argument is embarrassing three different ways. It's, It's shockingly bad. First, the... Um, North Carolina legislature, any state legislature, is nested within a state constitutional system, um, and it's a product of the state constitution. And the um, and if the state constitution limits the state legislature in certain ways, that's built into what the state legislature is. And who interprets the state constitution under the state constitution? It's the state supreme court, and the state legislature knows all of that. Um, and Justice Stevens said that in Bush versus Gore. So that's just the first point. Um, and he was right in Bush versus Gore. The state constitution operates um, uh, and, and modifies and limits kind of how to think about what the state legislature is. But even if you thought Justice Stevens um, you know, was wrong about that, and he was in dissent in Bush versus Gore, the United States Supreme Court more recently affirmed just all of that in an opinion by none other than Chief Justice Roberts, um, in an opinion out of Arizona. Um, and uh, so um, it's now stare decisis precedent. That was an opinion about congressional elections rather than about Article One, which is governed by Article One of the Constitution, um, uh, rather than presidential elections, which are governed by Article Two. But this um, Arizona case said clearly and unequivocally that the state constitution can play a role in limiting what a state legislature does um, when it comes to congressional elections. And if that's true for Article One, it has to be true for Article Two. And Gorsuch just missed it. And so did Alito, and so did Thomas, and for a nanosecond, maybe even so did Kavanaugh. So he's just wrong as a matter of first principles, point one. The state constitution constrains and, 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 and shapes who the state, you know, what the state legislature. State legislature is a product of the state constitution, and state courts, uh, Supreme Courts, of course, interpret the meaning of the state constitution. But even if that's wrong as a matter of first principles, it's now correct as a matter of precedent, and, and those precedents are binding, and Gorsuch um, missed that. And third, um, even if none of that was true, surely a state legislature could choose to bring in the state Supreme Court um, as, a, as a partner in, in the process. Um, um, a state legislature you know, could basically say, here's the state law, and we designate the state Supreme Court as the final interpreter of this um, law. And of course, that legislature did. Why do I say that? Because these elections, they're not just elections for the president. They're elections for um, state legislature, state assembly, state legislature, sometimes in some cases state governors, other statewide offices for um, um, uh, city school boards, for uh, city council, um, for mayors. And the ballot rules, uh, like, wh- for example, when... Um, uh, uh, absentee ballots have to have to um, be filed. You know all of those rules, uh, where you have to drop them off, and 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 with what procedures. Those rules apply to all parts of the election and everywhere else. You know for all the state uh, 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 election stuff, that's governed by the state constitution of its own force. 
um, as interpreted by the state Supreme Court, and it would be really weird for the legislature to say, yes, we want the state, the state constitution, of course, applies to all the state election, um, uh, um, all the state elections. Um, and of course, the state Supreme Court's going to interpret um, th- that um, uh, uh, f- uh, as to uh, uh, when you have to cast your absentee ballot and, and where you have to pick it up and where you have to drop it off and, and all of that. Okay, so the state Supreme Court gets to be involved in all of that, but, um, but we actually don't want the state Supreme Court to be involved in the presidential part of, of the ballot because it's all part of one ballot, one process. It would be weird and stupid. No, there's no evidence that any state legislature thought that. Okay, um, um, so, um, so here's what Justice Gorsuch says. Besides... Even assuming the state, North Carolina General Assembly could delegate its election clause authority to other officials, well, of course it can. It, it, it has the authority to decide, you know, who, who decides. Um, its representatives, that is, members of the state legislature in this litigation, contend before us that it has not authorized the deadline extension here, and understandably so. Oh, my God. So well, that's not actually how you, you legislate. Um, my friend, it's not the members of the state legislature coming to um, uh, court. That doesn't even include the governor who's part of the lawmaking process. Th- th- these are just litigants. And, and they're not necessarily even the same people who passed the law. Maybe the law was passed three years ago. Okay? So it's crazy to say, well, they're saying otherwise, you know, politically in, in the case before us. That, that's, with all due respect, Justice Gorsuch, that's not wrong. That's idiotic. Um, it's, it's just a violation of rule of law 101. And then he says... Um, its representatives before us contend, as I said, that it's not authorized the deadline extension um, here. And then he says, we need not go rifling through, because he understands plain meaning and all the rest. So he says, we need not go rifling through state law to understand the, um, uh, uh, these issues. All we need to know uh, about the issue um, um, is plain from the federal and state constitution. So he's looking at the state constitution saying, like, I disagree with the, the North Carolina Supreme Court's interpretation. Not your call, Justice Gorsuch. That's con law 101. You are not, I know you're very smart, and I know you're very tall, and I know you went to you know, great um, schools and all the rest, but you are not the last word on the meaning of state constitutions. Every law student learns that in a case called Erie. It's a Brandeis opinion. Um, Con Law 101, that federal courts are not the last word on the meaning of state statutes or state constitutions. State courts are. Um, uh, by the way, that goes all the way back to the Marshall Court in a case called Green versus Neal's Lessee. Um, and um, it was emphatically um, uh, re-emphasized by Louis Brandeis, in one of the most important cases he ever decided, a case called Erie, probably the single most significant constitutional law case of the first third of the, uh, of the first um, uh, 40 years of the, of the 20th century, say before Brown. And here's what's interesting. The guy who really gets that on the Supreme Court totally is John Roberts. That um, uh, we have to defer to state court interpretations of state constitutions and state statutes. And it's an interesting. He gets it. He clerked for Friendly, who clerked for Brandeis. He really understands Erie, okay? Um, and, and by the way, I mentioned Erie before, because Erie stands for the proposition that if earlier cases are incorrect, you overrule them, and Justice Kagan actually hasn't you know, quite taken that on board. So, in fact, in the run-up to the 
a federal election. I didn't side with the liberals because the liberals were egging on federal judges who were creatively reinterpreting state election law, and I didn't think that was right. Um, and the conservatives were tr- wanting to jump in when they thought state courts were just being too generous to, to voters and stretching the meaning of election law. Not their call. One justice, and one justice alone basically got every one of those cases right. Happily, the chief justice. His name is John Roberts. He says, state courts can, from our point, you know, can quote creatively, unquote, um, uh, reinterpret meaning of state laws. That's that they get to do that, um, um, just like. Um, uh, but federal courts don't. The United States Supreme Court has not actually read everything in the in the U.S. Constitution from a strict textualist point of view, substantive due process, and all the rest. Um, and so, states are allowed to do the same thing with their state constitutions, Justice Gorsuch. So, here are the two things that you say that are just preposterous. You're saying. Ah, I, Neil Gorsuch, am looking at the state constitution, and it seems to mean X to me. Not your call. Eerie. Green versus Neil's SE. That's just bedrock fed courts law, and I teach fed courts every year. Number two, um, you say, well, the state legislature in the case before us is saying that the state Supreme Court has misconstrued. It's not the state legislature. It's state legislators who are before you. The state legislature that passed that law no longer exists probably, and even if it does, it exists in a certain process that involves the governor and all the rest, and this is not how you do law. You don't just listen to what state legislators tell you after the fact. And if you did, by the way, oh, if we could bring back from the dead all the people who voted for Title VII, bunch of them, Marshall McLuhan-like, would say, no, we didn't mean sexual orientation at all, you know, but that's not how we do statutory interpretation. Okay, so you see, I sucked up to Justice Gorsuch for part of um, our analysis, and I went after him hard for the other part, which is what we do on this podcast. You mentioned the case Green versus Neil's lessee. It's uh, perhaps a little bit ironic that we're talking about Neil's lessee here, Neil Gorsuch. But can, can you tell me about the uh, about that case? It's a, a case from the Marshall Court era, um, and it stands for the proposition a hundred years before Erie. It's eighteen thirty-two or something like that. So a hundred years before Erie, it stands for the proposition that the United States Supreme Court is not supreme over every legal issue. Um, And in particular, the United States Supreme Court is not supreme over state law. It's supreme over federal law, federal constitution, federal statutes, federal treaties. It's the last word within a judicial system on the meaning of federal law. But state courts are the last word on the meaning of state statutes and, of course, state constitutions. And Green versus Neal's seat makes that clear. Here's what happened. At time T1, the Supreme, United States Supreme Court heard a case uh, involving a state statute. I think it was Pennsylvania. I'd have to double check. And it says, oh, the statute means X. That's how we interpret it. There wasn't a big, there may not have been a big federal law issue in the case, um, um, but certain state law issues called diversity cases uh, uh, could come up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It reads a state statute to mean X. Then uh, there's um, a later um, uh, case in the state court system, and the state Supreme Court reads that very same state statute in a case involving different parties, to mean why. 
Now the issue at a later point comes back to the Supreme Court, and the question is whether they're going to say, ah, it means X, as we said before, or no, it means Y, because the state Supreme Court has said otherwise. And in Green versus Nails SC, the Supreme Court makes clear, oh, it means Y, because we are not, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, are not the last word on the meaning of a state statute. The state Supreme Court is, and what's true of state statutes is, of course, also true of state constitutions. Now, Andy, I know you, you're, um, I, can, I can see in your eyes what you're going to ask me next, which is, well, if Green versus Niels Lassie says all of that in the 1830s, why do you need Erie in the 1930s? And the answer is what Green versus Niels Lassie did for state statutes, Erie does for state common law. That is um, rules of law, like of contract, of tort, of property that aren't laid down in a state statute, but are instead pronounced in state court decisions. And just as Green versus Niels Lessee says, construe the statute the way the state Supreme Court would, because it's a state law, um, Erie says, construe contract property, tort law, um, as the state Supreme Court would construe it, um, 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 because it doesn't matter whether a state decides to enunciate its policies through a statute or through decisional law. Um, but in both situations, it's state law, whether it's state statutes or state common law, and, and state statutes mean what state Supreme Courts say they mean, and state common law means what state Supreme Courts say they mean. Maybe you can help me, uh, Professor, as a uh, as not even a law student. Um, you were talking about Arizona, uh, the Arizona redistricting case. Um, but there's an earlier case, right? The, so so that it wasn't really the first impression on that, right? Wasn't there an earlier case, uh, Smiley versus Holm, that kind of dealt with uh, similar issues? There um, was, and uh, the world's expert on that case, he's been writing about it for you know, um, many, many years, Smiley versus Home, sometime co-author and all-time brother, Vic Amar. Um, we are going to be publishing a piece in the Supreme Court Review about all these issues. Supreme Court Review is a faculty-edited law review just devoted to analyzing um, the, the Supreme Court and, and typically it, the cases that it handed down in the previous year. Um, and... Um, uh, and uh, Vic has posted um, uh, uh, many things on, on the web about all of this. He did it in real time as um, some of these um, uh, issues were unfolding. Uh, Vic and I and the great Neil Katyal, who's going to come on as our uh, podcast guest soon enough, um, former acting solicitor general of the United States, um, published an op-ed in the New York Times saying all of this is crazy. Um, I did another op-ed um, um, in the New York Daily News about some of these issues. In our next episode, I think we're going to talk about uh, 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 Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch in more detail. One thing that I do want to, um, just as a sneak preview, mention is that Justice Kavanaugh initially was saying some things in some separate opinions a little bit like Gorsuch. Um, and um, after this op-ed came out in the New York Times, Neil's, Vic's, and mine, Justice Kavanaugh stopped saying that and, and kind of moved closer to uh, Chief Justice 
Roberts, and, and good for him. I have no idea whether his clerks read the op-ed, whether he read the op-ed, whether it had any impact on him at all, just as I have no idea whether Chief Justice Roberts ever saw uh, what I wrote about the Sibelius oral argument and how uh, really he should, um, the court should up, uphold this as a, um, the, the Obamacare as a tax um, um, from a, with, with a little Brandeisian twist, construing the law in a way that, that, that would save it, a la Brandeis. Um, so don't know if Chief Justice Roberts ever saw that, what I said about Sibelius. Don't know if, if Kavanaugh ever saw um, what I wrote um, in the New York Times uh, uh, about um, Bush versus Gore, but Kavanaugh stopped saying um, this um, crazy thing about the Supreme Court's ability to basically disregard state Supreme Court interpretations of state constitutions. Kavanaugh stopped saying that in the election context, um, but Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas didn't. And of course, that brings up an interesting question, something we might keep in mind just going forward, which is, if you know you're you're the great and powerful Oz, as you've put it, you know, in ter- on the Supreme Court, one is, and uh, pronoun- making pronouncements, and how do you maintain the humility to be able to say, you know, what I'm actually wrong there? You know, how do I how do I move forward and not lose all my credibility, but still, you know, do what's right? How do I be a justice? You know, and so forth. And these are these are interesting issues, which. Of course, I have no idea how one would do that, but I, but I, but I think that it's uh, it's something that which is to be admired if it if it can can be done. Um, it's um, a, a virtue in many contexts. It's especially important for judges. We talk about judicial humility. Um, uh, for uh, academics, um, uh, what I love about um, the website that you helped me create. Andyonakilamar.com is I'm putting up all the mistakes that I'm finding in my most recent book. And eventually I have to, I actually have a log, but I have to get to my office and I haven't been able to go to my office uh, very often because of COVID. Um, but I'm going to try to keep a log of all the mistakes in, that I've been able to identify in all my books and put them up there for the world because that's what an academic should do is uh, correct a mistake when he or she finds it. So, um, um, there's an errata log, basically, um, on uh, akilamar.com for the new book. And um, we think, uh, I, at least I've said in previous episodes of this podcast, that, that several things that folks have said about the 16, about, in the 1619 Project, about Lord Dunmore's proclamation and uh, its relationship to the uh, American Revolution, are inc- incorrect and and I've invited Professor Jill Lepore to come on this show to, to talk about um, uh, that issue. Um, um, uh, 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 Nicole Hannah-Jones has recently accepted a position at Howard, so she's a professor now, too. Um, I'd invite her if she ever would be um, so inclined to honor us with her presence, because I think what they're saying is incorrect, and they should actually um, uh, do a, um, a, a, a correction. Um, so that's what academics should do. Um, what have judge justices at their best done? Um, I mentioned two cases um, in particular in a previous episode where the Supreme Court reversed itself, just saying we were wrong. Um, one was Erie, and I've talked about Erie. Another, the other major case in which they just said we were wrong uh, is a case involving compulsory flag salutes in the public schools 
uh, um, an iconic case, um, an absolutely canonical case, called West Virginia versus Barnett. Um, and West Virginia Bar- versus Barnett said, government can't force people to um, uh, salute the flag. That violates the, basically their rights of, um, of free expression. And that overrules a case only from a couple of years before called Gobitis. Um, and the overruling was not just because there were new justices on the court, although there were. The overruling also occurred because several justices in the Gobitis majority said, oops, we made a mistake now that we think about it more carefully. We were wrong before. That includes Justices Black and Douglas. As you know, Justice Black is one of my heroes, and, and one of the things that I really admire is he, he basically said, I made a mistake in Gobitis, let's fix it, and um, the fixing is Barnett. Did the court ever admit error in, after Korematsu? Uh, yes, the court has, in recent decisions, said we think Korematsu was a mistake. Um, the court said that um, m- uh, most dramatically in the so-called travel ban case involving President Trump. Um, here's what the chief justice wrote in his opinion for the court in Trump versus Hawaii. And by the way, I think he was right in that case. Um, and so um, I'm with um, the conservatives in that case. Um, the dissent's reference to Korematsu affords this court the opportunity to make express what is already obvious. Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the court of history, and, to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. And that last phrase is a quote from the dissent that Robert Jackson uh, wrote in 1944. And note that Robert Jackson is the author of the West Virginia versus Barnett case, of the majority opinion. So the, the same um, uh, Robert Jackson. Um, I wrote a book a while ago called The Law of the Land, um, which begins with um, four profiles of a notable constitutional decision makers, and I connect it to where they came from. So chapter one is all about Lincoln and Illinois. Um, chapter two is all about Hugo Black and the Southland. Chapter three is about Robert Jackson um, and um, uh, New York. Um, and Robert Jackson comes from the same part of New York, by the way, where um, John Roberts was born, interestingly enough. Um, the, he was born very close to where Robert Jackson came from. Um, and uh, the fourth uh, chapter um, uh, is all about... Uh, uh, Anthony Kennedy and uh, Northern California, where I'm from. Robert Jackson, some people consider the greatest writer to sit on the court. He's also the most, the the last justice to have not gone to law school. So he and um, uh, Hugo Black um, were kind of um, under-credentialed in that way. Black went to law school, but it wasn't a fancy one. It was only for two years. And Robert Jackson basically, yes, as you said, read law. He did spend time in an official law school, but not the customary today, three years. Um, and so he became a, a lawyer through more the, the apprentice model, like um, a fellow named Lincoln way back when. So uh, this is you know, a little different than some of our episodes in the sense that we actually did quite a lot of law. 
Um, so very, you know, we always do quite a lot of law, Andy, don't we? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> well, the more I talk, the less law we do. So um, anyway, so uh, uh, as a result, I think we'll uh, we'll be moving on to uh, the final two justices in our in our next episode, um, and uh, be interesting to to contrast uh, Justice Gorsuch's approach to uh, this. Uh, these issues of of uh, voting election laws um, with uh, Justice Kavanaugh's, as you've alluded to on a couple of occasions. So I look forward to that. Great. Thank Thanks, you. Andy. Thank you. Thank you.